Okay, so this morning we're in week five of our summer series that we're titling Acts Like a Christian. Um, uh, And one of the things we've been trying to kind of keep in perspective is Luke's purpose for writing this letter to Theophilus, um, which kind of helps highlight some of the literary nuances uh, that Luke is trying to kind of draw out in this letter, particularly the things that he really wants his Roman benefactor to see. He's got this guy that uh, most physicians back then were paid uh, and funded by a rich person, a benefactor. Um, and then you were kind of their doctor as well as taking care of other things. So Luke most likely had Theopolis as a benefactor in Rome. And, uh, and he's trying to kind of garner some help for Paul, who is imprisoned in Rome when this letter is written. Um, so one of my favorite things that Luke does in this narrative is he pauses every once in a while to take a snapshot to just kind of in the middle of the story. He stops and just kind of paints us a quick little picture of what the church looked like in those days. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Reg read one of these little literary pictures to us. Um, and at the end of today's passage, there's another one that we're going to uh, stop and look at for a minute. Um, while I was thinking about these snapshots, um, it made me kind of wonder what people like a thousand years from now, uh, if Jesus waits that long to return, um, will think about pictures from today, especially like all the pictures we pump out into cyberspace right now. Like I wonder if if uh, what they'll think about our fascination with taking pictures of our food. Like I wonder if historians and in, in like... Uh, 3021 will assume that we were starving to death and we were so excited when we got a meal, we took a picture of it. Like, I wonder what story they'll tell to explain why in the world we did that, you know. Um, and what on earth will they make of the feet on the beach picture that everybody has to do? You know what I mean? Like, will they, what stories will they tell to explain why we did that? Or bathroom selfies. I would love to hear a historian break that down for us. What story is that telling? Um, but as I contemplated these deep and eternal mysteries, um, I sifted through some family pictures of ours, wondering what stories they might tell someday. Some are pretty obvious, like this one. This is my crew hiking on our family vacation last year. Um, this had to be early in the hike because I am not yet drenched in sweat. And, uh, and everybody's still smiling. And so that must have been pretty nice. That's a good story. Um, some pictures are kind of more inspiring and heartwarming. This is the very first night that a small group of people gathered in a space that we were going to rent so that we could start OTCC. We sang and prayed and toured the facility, um, which was awesome. And then while we were still in that space, um, we were remodeling this space so that we could uh, move to Wellsville and start a new chapter in our church's life. So snapshots can carry a lot with them, a lot of story. Um, but some are a little tougher to decipher. For instance, my family has um, like an online photo dump that all of our phones automatically back up onto. So when you get on there, you just get what everybody's photos have been taking, which is kind of fun every once in a while. Um, but once in a while, you get something uh, like this that um, uh, I don't even know exactly how this happened or what is happening here. But, um, but yeah, just goes and goes and goes. Then he's gone. You know, you just get the bed for a while. Then he's back and his tongue and the, the whole thing. And so, um, yeah, so this makes it, you know, a little more exciting. I have no idea what a historian would do with that. Um, and sometimes it's actually dangerous. I was in line in a public place once. If you've heard, if you've heard the story, um, don't give away the punchline. Uh, and I'm looking for a photo as I'm standing in a public line and I see the naked picture of a young boy's butt kind of from underneath with everything. And I'm like, what in the heck? Like I'm, someone's going to think I've got terrible stuff on my phone. So I just, I just exit out and I get home and I'm like, babe, what is the deal with the naked butts on the family thing? I was in a public line. And she was like, I don't know. And she looks at it. She's like, well, that's definitely Isaac's butt. (laughs) So, so I, I call Isaac in. I was like, Hey dude, what is the deal with taking pictures of yourself with your mom's phone? He was like, oh, man, I was climbing the tree outside and I fell and I thought I was bleeding, but I couldn't see it. And so I got mom's phone and the first couple were blurry. So I kept going until I got a good one just to see if I was bleeding. (laughs) And I was like, your reasoning is solid, but use a mirror next time, not the phone. (laughs) Yeah. So you never know what you're going to get. (laughs) <laughs> from, a, <laughs> from a picture. 
And sometimes the story can get totally skewed from a faulty camera. Uh, because for the last 22 years, I looked at the oldest one that I have is 22 years old. Um, we've had the same issue with every single camera we've owned. They've all had this flaw, and I cannot figure out what it is. Every single one of them accidentally takes pictures of my wife's butt. I don't know, I don't know what that's... You can move on. I don't know what that's from, but apparently it's happened for 22 years. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Ah, I actually hope they assign like some great story to that. Some like idol worship thing. Like, dude, that dude was really messed up. But um, that'd be great in the history class. Uh, So, yeah, Luke's verbal snapshots that he gives us might be a better way of, uh, of painting an accurate picture than uh, than real pictures, especially of what the church was like in 33 A.D. Um, today's picture, uh, uh, passage actually builds directly off of last week's passage. It's really one story that kind of ties together. Last week we read about Peter and John doing this amazing miracle um, because they just happened to get to the the temple at the same moment people were dropping off um, this crippled uh, this crippled guy to panhandle um, there. And so what could have been an otherwise awkward moment at best, or maybe even a frustrating moment to Peter's faith, becomes uh, this opportunity for Peter to not only do a miracle for a man who was in his 40s and had been crippled for his entire life, but also to lead 2,000 people to Jesus because of it, um, which is amazing, uh, except this really high-profile miracle got Peter and John in trouble. And that's where we get into today's passage. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter 4. If you want to follow along in your own Bible or app, if not, the words will be behind me on the screen. Or if you're online, they'll be smack dab in the middle of your screen. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. So many of the people who heard their message believed. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought, into the two, they brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of, the, of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know? Uh, whoops, lost it. Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the power of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man who, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But they, but to keep them from spreading their propaganda any farther, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in the name of Jesus again. So they called the apostles back and commanded them to never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for the miraculous sign. The healing of the man who had been lame for more than 40 years. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voice together and prayed to God. Oh, sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the seas and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor, David, your servant, saying, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah. 
In fact, this has happened here in this very city. From Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, and the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done in the name of, the holy, of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. All the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because they, those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money of the apostles to give them to give it to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one who the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means sons of, son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came to the island of Cyprus, from the island of Cyprus, where or he sold a field he owned and bought, brought the money of the apostles. This is the word of the Lord. I know it can get a little tedious um, listening to me read such a long passage, especially since I'm not the greatest reader in the world. Um, and believe me, I always feel a temptation to just only focus in on the verses that I I want to preach on, but I, I, I think it's important to get context for one. Um, and I think it's too common today that we'll have a 40 minute sermon on like one or two verses. Um, because I, I think I like to try to stretch our capacity to read bigger chunks of scripture. And so, you know, as a group, Hey, we just read a full chapter, um, in Acts. So even if we stopped there, that would probably be good uh, for, a lot of people, but I'm, I'm definitely not going to stop there. I've got like two hours of material here, but um, no, I'm kidding. Um, although I did go like an hour and two minutes on Mother's Day. So I think, I'm, you know, just to keep it even. Um, <laughs> but there are about a hundred potential sermons in this chapter alone. This is like a really deep chapter, but I'm going to try to kind of stick to our objective of looking at this book as to what it means to be a Christian in 2021. How do we read Acts like a Christian um, in 2021? Which is good for this chapter for two reasons, um, which I think uh, is pertinent today. And that is that two really huge transitions happen in this chapter that are easy to miss, um, that I think affect us uh, today. Um, and so, uh, so I, I want to stay here for that. And the second thing is, um, I think we sometimes consider the, the trouble that the apostles get into for doing this uh, amazing miracle, um, which is apparently just one of such miracles. Um, and it makes us think, why don't those things happen today? Like, why don't we see the big, you know, crazy miracles like this today? And, uh, although I don't have a definitive, um, answer for that, I do have a couple theories, one of which I'm going to share this week and one I'm going to share next week. But first let's look at these transitions um, that happen today. The first one is subtle, but really, really important. The miracle that starts off this entire drama happens in the temple. Um, which was both the center of Jewish life and this prophetic, um, prophetically confusing element in the Jewish story. Uh, part of the Jewish understanding of God from the beginning was that God is everywhere. He's the maker of everything. He's too big to be contained, uh, especially in a temple. But when David becomes king, he has this deep heart desire to create this place that will be the central place of worship for all of Israel, where they can come together as one people and worship God. They would put the Ark of the Covenant there, and people could come and interact with God in that space. And so he goes to the prophet of God named Nathan. He's like, hey, can I do this? And at first, Nathan is like, dude, go for it. That's almost a direct translation. Dude, go for it. Um, It actually reads like this. When King David has settled in the palace, the Lord had given him rest among uh, his surrounding enemies. The king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever's on your mind. Uh, The Lord is with you. So, dude, go for it is pretty much exactly what he says. Um, But then it seems like as soon as Nathan left, God sends him back to kind of nuance this message just a little bit. It starts like this. But the same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle for my dwelling. Yet, no matter where I've gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds, or my people. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? 
So right off the bat, even as David is trying hard to honor God through this temple, there's this tension uh, between the fact that God seems to understand David's heart and his desire, but also sees the potential danger of, of what this um, concept could mean to his people's understanding of his omnipresence. Like if I have a place, the people might lose track of the fact that I'm everywhere. But God plays along and he allows David's son Solomon to build him a temple. And when, when they dedicate it, the presence of God comes down so strong that the people whose job it was to minister in the temple couldn't even stay there. They had to like leave the temple because the glory of God was so um, powerful on it. But it turns out God was right. Um, and the kingdom splits after Solomon. And, and one of the driving div- divisive elements of the split was that the temple was in the southern part. And so the, the northern part resented that and it became uh, a deepening of this divide because the southern side, like we do, felt like they had kind of a corner on God's presence. Like, like we're the ones who can experience God's presence because we have the temple. And so they got arrogant uh, and, the, and it made the northern tribes try to make a false temple and, it, and things got ugly, which I think is what God understood in the beginning. Like, have I ever lived in a house? Like, does that even sound like me? Um, and so, uh, and then to make things more complicated, um, the temple is destroyed and, and Babylon comes and conquers Israel and takes them into captivity and tears down the temple. And so now you've created this place that is God's presence and is gone. And so it leaves them wondering, well, now what? We have no temple. How do we meet with God? And, and things get confusing. And into this kind of giant question mark, the prophet Ezekiel, whose vision of the dry bones we spent so much time in a couple months ago, is a priest. He works in the temple, and now there is no temple, and he's in Babylon, taken captive, and uh, and he's trying to figure out what his life means now, and he has this uh, this vision once he's in Babylon. It reads like this: As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light, and there was fire inside the cloud, and the middle of the fire glowed something like a gleaming amber. And the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except for each one of them had four faces and four wings. Um, and then he goes on and on. And if you've read this, you know I stopped right before it gets real weird. Like in, every time Esther like hits this chapter in her kind of read through the Bible in a year program, we always discuss the probability of Ezekiel using drugs because it's, it's weird. And, uh, but when you compare the things that David saw to the, the decorations on the inside of the temple and the cherubim and some of the wings and the faces and some of the things they made, you start to realize what what Ezekiel is seeing is this, this almost vision of the temple. It's really similar to the way God told them to decorate the temple. So it's almost this living, breathing, moving temple. And, uh, or you might say it's probably the temple that, that they were modeling the earthly temple after. It's very similar in design and, and decor. And, uh, and the, the confusing part to, to Ezekiel and really to any Jew isn't so much what is seen. We get caught up on what is seen as wheels and sides of wheels and there's, they're, they look human, except they got four faces and wings. Well, that doesn't even sound human, so I don't even know. And it, it gets weird. But to a Jew, they don't really get caught up on that. They're like, to a Jew, they're wondering why Ezekiel's seeing this in Babylon. Like, the presence of God is not in Babylon. And so, you know, a Jew would see this and they would be like, so they don't get caught up in what he sees. They get caught up in where he sees it. How are you seeing the presence of God in Babylon? God doesn't live in Babylon. He lives in Jerusalem. And so they're really confused about this. I mean, to a Jew, it'd be like, hey, what's a God like you doing in a CD joint like this? Um, maybe not like that. But they would be like, why are you here? That's the, to a Jew, that's the import of this vision is that while sitting in Babylon, Ezekiel still has access to the presence of God. And that was a... That was a shocker to them because even though they knew, um, you know, that that God used to move around, every living Jew at this point thought God's presence was in the temple and always had been. And so uh, and then, you know, some people were released. They rebuild the temple and everybody's celebrating about it. But those who kind of remember the story of the presence of God coming down back in Solomon's day are bummed because they know that it's lost something. Something is lost in this. And so the temple is this confusing Elements in the Jewish story nobody really knows what to do with. And if you fast forward 400 years to today's passage 
it's still this kind of weird element that nobody knows what to do with because it's, again, the center of Jewish life. It's where everything happens. But Jesus comes in and trashes the place and calls out a bunch of the inconsistencies. And he's like, this, you, you've, you've done it all wrong. And, and so there's this confusion. And, and Ezekiel's vision was a big part of this. In Jesus' day, it was a major debate. As to what Jesus is, or what Ezekiel's vision means, and what does it mean to the earthly temple, and and they actually built a whole sect of Judaism off of trying to understand this vision, and people would try to meditate and read and see if they could access the the uh, the what they would call a throne room vision. Um, so in today's story, this this debate is still alive and well. Nobody really knows what to do with this temple, especially Christians who grew up with the temple being the center of everything, but who watched Jesus flip tables. And so they don't really know what to do. And when our story opens up, it seems like the apostles are living in that tension because they're still going to the temple every day, you know, for the, for the normal daily prayer times. Um, and yet they experienced the upper room where the Holy Spirit fell in somebody's attic and everybody was filled with the presence of God. And so they're, they're kind of living uh, in, this, in this tension. Uh, and so I don't think it's an accident that Luke kind of draws a juxtaposition in this passage where everything that happens happens in the temple. Uh, this kind of gross political like power struggle where the Jewish leadership you know, tries to command them not to speak in Jesus's name. Um, and that happens in the temple. But when they get together in somebody's living room, apparently later that night, when they're finally released, it reads like this. After the prayer, the meeting place shook and all were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached the word of God with boldness. And so it's almost like Ezekiel's vision where everybody's like, why is the presence of God in Babylon? Where, where everybody's like, why is God in Bob's house? Like, we get in trouble in the temple, but God falls at Bob's place. You know, everything gets weird. And I think that's the exact point Luke is trying to make here. And I know that verse kind of flies by the place we shook, and we don't really think much about it. But, uh, but from this point on, the temple is going to play less and less and less a part of the story. It's almost like from this moment when they get in trouble in the temple and they get arrested in the temple and then, then they leave the temple and go to somebody's house and the presence of God falls really similar to the way he did in Sinai, really similar to the way he did when Solomon dedicated the temple. From then on, it seems like God is saying, you are my temple, period. Stop focusing on this location you are the temple. And from, then, from, from this point on, the church is going to start to move and scatter and go to different places. And eventually the kind of headquarters moves from Jerusalem to Antioch and everything changes. And I think it starts in this moment when God says, no, 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 it's not about the place. It's about the people. And, and that happens in this story when God shakes the place where the people are. It's, it's like this official kind of statement. This is where the temple is, where you are is where the temple is. And this is mostly really important because of the second major transition that happens in this chapter. Uh, And it's really important that the temple can follow the people because of the second transition. After imprisoning Peter and John overnight, they question them, they listen to their explanations, they're kind of marveling at how articulate and confident these hicks are. Um, And so the ruling council kind of deliberates And the passage says this, but to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus name again. So they called the apostles back and commanded them never to speak again, uh, never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, Peter and John basically respond, oh, yeah, watch me. Like, that's kind of what they what they say here. Um, And they're set free. uh, But as soon as they get back to the prayer meeting, they say this. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests had said, or what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted up their voices together and prayed to God. Um, so after quoting some of the Tanakh uh, in their prayer and they worshiped for a little bit, they said this, And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. So let's break this down a little bit. What seems like on the surface is just the council giving kind of a toothless threat and the apostles being able to leave unharmed um, 
you know, so no real damage is done. That's what it seems like. You know, they just, they threaten him a little bit and set him free. No real damage is done. But as soon as they get back to the other Christian, everybody, like, it prompts this kind of explosive prayer that feels an awful lot like the drawing of battle lines. Like, the, the church seems really shaken up by this. So things don't seem to match up. The intensity of the prayer doesn't seem to match up the fact that nothing really happened, right? Except something big did happen, and it's really easy to miss. And here's what actually happened. If you want to punish someone for doing something that's technically not illegal, um, you have two options. One is you can have a nighttime trial, breaking the rules, skip a bunch of the due process, and manufacture evidence so that you can kill them, like they did with Jesus. Or you can change the law. If you, if you, you, cause you, if you can't punish them because they didn't really break the law, well, then you change the law. Right. And what happens here is this Jewish leadership, which is basically like Congress and the president in this area, maybe even the Supreme Court, although that might have been Rome, but that's taking the metaphor too far. Um, what, what sounds like an empty threat is actually a policy change. It's actually a policy change. The ruling body who has the power to make the law has just changed the law. So the impact of this moment is huge. And the early church absolutely understands the implications, which is why they pray so explosively and so desperately, really. So it'd be the equivalent of us if Congress passed a law tomorrow saying it's illegal to have church now. It's now against the law to have church. Nothing in your life would change at that moment. You weren't beaten. You weren't imprisoned. You weren't killed. But it might make you get together with your people and go, okay, we now need to pray because the game has just changed. You know, you might be like, oh, God, things just got real. You're going to need to show up, you know. And and that's exactly what happens. So from, from this point on, not only does the temple get to move, but the people are going to have to move. Because this is when the real persecution starts and it doesn't stop. And it all starts with this one subtle change in the policy that happens in this book. And we can miss that. So from this point on, it's kind of open season on Christians, which changes everything. So if we zoom out a little bit to Luke's purpose for this book, where he's trying to garner support for Paul, who's in prison, it's kind of important that he, that he identify for Theophilus the moment the things that Paul uh, is doing became illegal. Like this was the point, and here's how it happened. Uh, Peter and John do this miracle, and it, and it upsets the ruling body, and so they pass a law where we can't do it anymore. That's why Paul is in prison. So it's kind of important. And so far, um, uh, and as, I mean, as far as transition moments uh, go in this passage, not only has the temple gone mobile, but the church is now officially a subversive body. It's now officially... Um, kind of an underground movement. From this point on, the focus will get farther and farther from the Jerusalem Synod Temple and the outright persecution of the church begins. So even though these are subtle and easy to miss, they totally change the direction of the narrative from now on. Everything shifts in this chapter, um, which brings up today's the point that I really want to dig into in today's passage. Uh, and it's because I absolutely love and maybe even aspire to Peter and John's response to this new law. Because a bad thing has just happened. What they love and what is important to them just became illegal. And their response to that, I think, is huge. Having performed an amazing miracle and led 2,000 people to Jesus, they then had to spend a night in jail. Um, uh, and then they had to watch these rulers kind of change the policy to restrict them from being good witnesses uh, and it leaves a question, what do you do in that moment? What do you do after that? And boy, oh boy, is this a question I think we need to wrestle with. Um, because we, I think in a small way, we struggle with this just with church alone. Church is easy when Sundays are fun and full of energy and the church gets a brand new coffee that you really like and the temperature is just right in the room and there's no one at church you dislike right now. And it's, it's fun and easy to go to church, Right. I always give my wife a hard time about being in good shape because she actually likes to eat healthy food, which I think is totally unfair. And I always tell her, I would be in good shape too if I liked eating healthy food. It doesn't even take any discipline for you. You just do it because you, like given a choice between candy and a salad, she'll always choose a salad. I'm like, 
Well, yeah, I'd be skinny too if I liked salad. It's only fair, it's only fair if you had to sacrifice something, right? And I think church can be like that. Church is easy when it's easy. But in today's passage, church just got less easy. And as I said, the apostles handle it this way. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers. They ran back to their people. Peter and John didn't go back to their old jobs. In fact, one of the ways we know that Peter has truly changed is after following Jesus for three and a half years, dumping his career and changing his life, the second Jesus died, he went right back to fishing. When Jesus came back, he found Peter on a boat fishing again. Like just bailed on the whole idea and went back to fishing. And now he doesn't do that. This time is different. After the resurrection and Pentecost, Peter no longer goes back to his old move. Instead, he runs back to his people, goes to his people. And I think this is significant for us to ponder this morning. When life gets hard, when things fall completely apart, when you're angry or scared or offended, when your life runs into a real transition point, heck, when you get bored, where do you turn? What do you do? Do you run? Do you hide? Do you get so busy that you just outrun the negative feelings? Do you sort it out all on your own and then show up once everything is shiny again and you have no problems? You have everything tucked in neatly underneath? Or do you run to God's people with your burdens in your arms asking someone to help you carry it? Because that's what Peter and John did. They made a beeline for their people. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. They didn't stop and confer with each other. They didn't polish it all up so that they could present it to the church in a shiny package. We have a new opportunity. No, they ran back to the safety of their people and they say, we got a problem. And they dumped it. I said earlier that we would wrestle with the question, why did the book of Acts type stuff happen back there, but not today? I think it starts here. No more running. When life is hard, you show up and share that. When you're a mess, you show up and share that. When you don't even know if you believe in Jesus anymore, you show up and share that. which I think when we meditate on it explains the last part uh, of this chapter really well. Luke writes this, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them, because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give it to those in need. I spent so much time contemplating this passage because I don't really feel like full communalism like that where we just sell everything and share it works today. There's got to be a way to apply this um, in a way that, that can help us. And so I've chewed and chewed on this, wondering how we live out this passage today. I've chewed on this for years. And for some reason this year, I thought of something that I hadn't thought of before. Who on earth shares everything? Who buys food out of the same checking account? Who drinks out of the same milk jug? Who borrows each other's shoes and jackets? Who on earth like calls expecting to borrow a car when there's dies? Who borrows your tools without even asking? The answer is self-evident, right? Your family does. That's the only people you share with like that, your family. And I think that's what makes this passage so weird to us is because we can't imagine anybody sharing like that other than family. And the Middle East, their understanding of family and connection and commitment to family was even way more deep than ours is. But this crazy language that you Luke uses here is something you really only use for family, right? And of course, all through the Gospels, Jesus spoke of my father and your father. And he referred to to, and when, when he was hanging on the cross, he was talking about his, his mother Mary, and he looked at John, and he said, Behold, your mother, your mother. Now, 
in Matthew 12, his blood family came to get him and, and they, they told him about it. And, and it says, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak to you. Jesus said, who is who are my mother and my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does will of my father, my mother and sister and her brother and sister and mother. And for the rest of the New Testament, every writer refers to the readers as brothers and sisters. And God is the, the one father of all these children. And this language is not just Christianese. It's not just, well, that's what we call each other, brother. The, the disciples actually walked that way. They actually treated the people as though they were family, which means sharing and taking care of each other. Who else would you sell your land to help other than family? So please don't read this family language in the New Testament and think that it's theological semantics. Because it's not. This is something they lived out. This was their like walking theology. This is the theology that had shoes on it. Like this is how they lived. This is not metaphorical. <laughs> they saw themselves as family. So let's double back. Just, below, just before Luke starts this very story, he gives a snapshot of the church. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and prayer. A deep sense of awe came on all of them. The apostles performed signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared all the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared all their meals with great joy and responsibility or generosity. And all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. This, is, this sounds like heaven to me. But immediately after this little verbal photo, this little snapshot of what the church looked like, Luke tells a single story that takes two chapters to tell, and then this single miracle has this backlash, and then like he moves on to the next camera, the next picture in the camera roll, he says all the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt like... Uh, what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully of the resurrection of Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give it to those in need. And the big missing link to me, the thing that is prevalent in both of these snapshots, both of these pictures that I think is missing in the church today and I believe greatly affects the church's Ability to experience the presence of God as powerfully as the early church did is this. All the believers met in one place and shared everything. They were united in heart and mind and shared everything. The early church had unity, is what I'm saying. Real unity. They weren't torn apart by division. And I would love to spend a couple hours trying to unpack this. In fact, I think we're going to do a four-week series on this after this series, just on church unity. It's, it's something God's been kind of, I read a book and it's been kind of wrecking my world. So I think we're going to try to unpack it together, go over a few passages together after this series. Francis Chan says this, is the book I read, and I'm paraphrasing. But if I were to affirm biblical the biblical definition of marriage and and, uh, and stand for life and, and sexual purity and, and all those things, I'm considered a literalist and maybe even a fundamentalist because I believe the Bible. But if I say the Bible calls for the, the entire church to be united and never allow the body of Christ to be divided uh, over doctrinal differences, I'm somehow considered a, a liberal who's weak on theology and, and is just willing to let anybody in, which is crazy. Because unity is an absolute biblical doctrine. Like, if I fight for unity, it's because I'm a literalist. And I believe the Bible literally. I say it this way. Unity is not an atmosphere. It's not a great circumstance that we hope to achieve occasionally if we all focus on the same thing. Unity is a biblical command. It is a command and a solid and certain theological imperative. You cannot compromise unity for truth because that's compromising truth for truth. And you can't just pick one and let the other go. 
So we have to hold those in tension. So I don't want to dive too deep into this uh, because we're going to try to unpack it in, in September. But I do want to look at one little passage. This is from Ephesians 4. Now, these are the gifts Christ has given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. A lot of people call this the fivefold ministry. And, and when it's quoted, it's often stopped right here. Jesus gave the church these people so they could equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that, that's where we usually stop. The end. Except it's not the end. The very next verse reads like this. This will continue until we come into such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So Jesus sends leaders to to equip the church to do the ministry so that we can achieve unity. And if I have a gripe, maybe even a lament over the definitely the American Christian church, is that most of our leaders um, seem to pump rhetoric that leads to more division and competition and, and, and separation um, that I think is simply unbiblical. Um, I don't believe unity is important uh, because I, I think it's cool. I think it's important because it's a, it's a command from the Bible. It is something we have I believe in unity because I'm a legalist. I believe in obeying the Bible. I think, I think we're actually supposed to do what the Bible tells us to do. We're supposed to obey Scripture. Um, in fact, listen to the, how the fivefold ministry actually ends. This will continue until we've come to such unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed to and fro and blown by every wind of doctrine. I'm sorry, I'm quoting the way I learned it. Um, we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head and the of his body, the church, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I know every single one of us um, has a group or a a group of people in our head that were like, yeah, but those guys, they believe funny. I don't even know if they really count. Yeah, but those people vote funny. And I don't know. I don't know if they count. How could you love Jesus and vote like that? Or, yeah, but if you were really committed to Jesus, I I think you would stop doing that thing. I mean, surely they can't really love Jesus and live like that. We all have the addendum, right? We all have the thing that says, yeah, I get unity, but those guys... We all do it. And I think, just to put it bluntly, that is one of the contributing factors to why we don't see the kind of power and the kind of move of God that they saw back then. Because we're so busy fighting each other. Every time in the book of Acts we see this kind of power, Luke stops for a second, takes a snapshot, just so you know. They were all of one mind and they had unity. Just so you know, they didn't fight with each other. They took care of each other. We try to function properly as one-fourth of the body. Or one one one-hundredth of the body. Or if you want to consider all of the denominations on the earth, they say there's 45,000. So we try to function as one in 45,000ths of the body. And we wonder why we're not functioning well like we were designed to function. When we were forming Open Table Community Church and we were putting together our statement of faith, I'm not sure how many of you have gotten online and read that. We kept bumping into things that we were like, we want to say we believe that that excludes these people or those people. We don't want to be excluded. So we went back to the original creeds, like that the people who were really close to the source sat down and said, this is what we think is essential. And so we just hung on to that. We were like, you know what? It'd be really nice to know we haven't wandered far from those people who were considerably closer to the source. And so we shaped our our entire vision statement just around the creeds. We're like, we're going to hold these things tight. And that 1,700-year-old doctrine says this, we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. 
One. And we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. There's only one church, not 45,000. One church, unfortunately, split into 45,000 pieces, trying to function properly. So how do we respond to this? 45,000 different denominations all decided to act like one church is a tall order. That's too big for us. That's, that's out of our ability. But we still can't allow a commitment to unity to shape our holy imagination and motivate us right here at OTCC. This is why I love narratives like the book of Acts. By the time Luke wrote this book, division was already starting. Paul wrote, I think, the entire book of 1 Corinthians to combat division. We're actually going to unpack that book just a little bit in September, just to look at how every single chapter seems to have the same overarching message of stop dividing over these things. I think Luke is looking back at the potential in that early unity. And rather than commanding unity as a dry imperative, go be unified and get along. He gives us these snapshots, these beautiful pictures. Look at what life is like when you're unified. He gives us these Instagram moments of unity. What it looks like, what it feels like. So this morning we followed two guys who had a very tumultuous couple of days. Very rough couple of days. A miracle followed by a sermon and a lot of people coming to Jesus, which is awesome, except it's followed immediately by an arrest and a long night in jail and a very oppressive new law. They had to make them wonder if they maybe shouldn't have played it different. Because they had to sit there and think, ooh, maybe we, maybe we made too big a deal of that because now the whole church is going to be hurt. Like they, they had to bring up some questions. So they run back to their church after this kind of roller coaster event. And what do Peter and John do? They, they, they dive into the embrace of their people. It's a gorgeous picture, really. They run home. They run home. While Esther and I were dating, we were part of a small group, and we got together almost every night. It was never planned. Nobody ever got invited. We just showed up. I told Esther, I was living in Topeka going to school, and I told her every day, I have to stay and do some homework. I'm not coming down tomorrow. She's like, okay, me too. I'll do homework. Three o'clock the next afternoon. I'm on my way to Shawnee. Okay, I'll be there. Everybody would show up. 40 or 50 people packing in this two-bedroom apartment. It was insane. I'd taken to reading this little Bible. I had a Bible, a little mini pocket Bible in one pocket and a notebook in the other. And when I was on break at work, I'd read and I didn't understand a single word of it. So I'd write questions. And we never had an agenda. Sometimes it was me asking questions. It would turn into a Bible study. Sometimes it was somebody showing up saying they had a rough day at work, and so it would turn into a prayer meeting. Sometimes we were feeling goofy, and it would turn into hide-and-seek in the backyard. Like, there was never a plan. It was just, it was, it was shaped by the needs of the people. What are we going to do? Well, what do people need? But when you would go through your day, it felt like you were going through the day with all your people behind you. Because you knew, no matter what happens today, I'm taking it to my people. I'm going back and they'll pray for me or they'll answer my questions or we'll watch John Wayne movies together, whatever. While I'm out here in the world, I know I've got people, people that I'm going to go to, I'm going to run to. I don't know how to imagine the early church other than that group. That's like my context for what that must have felt like. But I believe that God is calling open table community church in that direction. In fact, it's one of the reasons we're so excited to start and launch some small groups is because we believe the church is supposed to be about real relationships. Family type relationships. That's when I call them fridge, fridge friends. The people who walk in your house and open the fridge door. Like, those are the kind of friends we like. Until you just dig through our fridge on your own, you're, you're not all the way in yet. Like, we love fridge friends. Like the ones who don't even ask. They just come and, what you got? <laughs> As I thought about the move of God that I sense in my heart right now, 
all week diving into this passage in Acts containing the first real resistance that the church runs into. It felt like it fit together to me. I've been saying for weeks now that I feel like God is moving to OTCC and I'm excited about the things that's happening. One of the reasons I think that God is moving is because a lot of our people are experiencing some real resistance right now. In fact, that is probably too mild. A lot of us are getting the crap kicked out of us. Sorry, Judy. There's an awful lot of people struggling, struggling in health, struggling in relationships, struggling with petty annoyances, struggling with loneliness and fatigue and struggling with finances. And yeah, we don't have a council full of people telling us not to talk about Jesus, but boy, it feels like someone or something is telling us not to. A lot of resistance right now. So here's how I hope we'll respond to this message. What we do and where we go when we struggle, I believe will dictate what we experience moving forward at Open Table Community Church. If we pull away from church, we handle our own business, we only bring the shiny best us to church, and I think we'll do fine. I think we'll continue to have a nice place to go to church and things will be fine. But I believe if we lean into our people, if we bring our junk and resistance and all of our mess to church and we let others help us carry it and we begin to pray for one another and ask God for boldness together and we bear each other, bear with each other when we have disagreements and when somebody annoys us, In other words, if we commit to unity, not uniformity, not all of us believing the same thing and and agreeing on the same thing, uniformity does not work. Unity works. When we go, even in our disagreements, even in our differences, these are my people. I believe if we commit to that, we see God move and amazing things happen. We can't do anything to fix the universal church. I wish we could. I wish Open Table Community Church could fix the 45,000 denomination brokenness, but that's too big for us. But we can certainly love each other. We can do that well. And we can refuse to compete with other churches. We can refuse to exclude those who disagree with us. We can do our best to fight for unity right here at Open Table. And I think if we actually do that because we believe the Bible and we believe that's what the Bible commands us to do, then I think God will move. Psalms 133, one of my favorite psalms, reads like this. This is a pilgrim song of David. How wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. It's like costly anointing oil flowing down head and beard, flowing down Aaron's beard, flowing down the collar of his priestly robes. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon flowing down the slopes of Zion. Yes, that's where God commands the blessing, ordains eternal life. How wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. That's where God commands the blessing. Let's go to the table.